Hi, friend. Hi, hi. How's it going? Oh, uh, you know, struggle bus party of one, as always. How are you? <laughs> Good. It's fall. It is fall. It's spooky season. It's spooky season. I'm so excited. This is Bookaholics Anonymous. I'm Francesca. I'm Alicia. And we missed last week. Yeah, we did miss last week. Alicia had a little impromptu camping trip. Camping trip. Yes. Yeah. It was fun. Even after a week of like not talking to each other, we were still finishing each other's sentences. But yeah, I was uh, in the Adirondacks. Fun. It was nice. I wish I could have got there like two weeks later because I think the leaves will be a lot better then. But it was still nice nonetheless. (laughs) Priorities. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Yeah, Francesca, you've had a uh, eventful week. Yes, I have. Speaking of, what are you drinking before we get to um, that? I am drinking this beer that's called To the Milky Way and Back. Ooh. Yes. How is it? It's good. It's all right. <laughs> I've had, like, they have, it's like, I don't know how to explain it. They have a bunch of different ones, and this is To the Milky Way and Back 8. Yeah. So I like a different, like, number version better mm. but it's it's still pretty good okay interesting i've never heard of it before it's from evil twin brewery mm. which is uh i think they're in queens Ooh. i think they have one in dumbo which is where i got this one from so ah okay well i'm drinking water because for the next two months your girl can't drink won't be drinking because I have surgery on Tuesday. Woo! So I have to drink for the both of us. Yeah, so she's going to be doing some heavy lifting for the next two months. Oof. My liver says no, but my heart says yes. <laughs> Take them for the team, sis. We got to do I'm, it. I'm, listen, <laughs> we have to do this for Francesca. <laughs> yeah, so that's going to be super fun. Uh, just been running around like a chicken with her head cut off last two days trying to get ready. Yeah, yeah. My bruises are healing nicely from all the blood work I had to do. Aw, how, how nice. Yeah. Ow, that one still hurts. That's stupid. <laughs> yeah, so Tuesday's the big day for surgery round three. Woo! Woo! It's going to be a great time. It is. Um, looking forward to it. It was either that or wait until November 30th. Yeah, we're not doing that. Yeah, no. I'm not no. waiting two months. I'm Goodbye. Not into that. No. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. So, I will be drinking water for the foreseeable future. But it's okay to compensate. I just won't take my ADHD medication. <laughs> Which is basically like the same thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's basically the same thing as if I was drunk. So, it's fine. We'd have to change like the name of the uh, podcast. Yeah. I don't know what it would be, but... ADHD girl tries to tell a story in one setting. (laughs) They started filming for Daisy Jones and the Six. Yes. So excited about that. Yeah, I was going to say, what are your feelings? Um, I love the look of the cast. I like that the the, uh, actors and actresses that they chose are based, like, all no names, I'm pretty sure. I didn't recognize anyone in that cast. I mean, Sam Kaflin. I didn't, I don't think he was in those pictures, was he? Yeah, he was. I didn't look that closely, that, but he's like the only one, right? Like, no, and most of um, them... um, the girl playing Daisy is pretty well known. Oh, is she? Yeah. She's in, she's, first of all, she's Elvis Presley's granddaughter. 
okay, that doesn't. And then okay. she's she's came out and she's just in a movie that's doing like really well. That was like based on a Twitter thread. I forgot the name of it, but I know her from that. And she was also in um, Devil All the Time with Tom Holland and Sebastian Stan. Oh, oh. And yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah, she was in that. But she's still relatively new. Yeah. Her and the girl playing, fuck, Billy's wife. Mm-hmm. She's dating Leonardo DiCaprio. God bless. She's 23. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can, I, yeah. We figured. I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> no shade to her. No. All the shade to him, though. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. We still love you, Leo. 90s Leo was a hit different. So true. So true. As I stated in my recap of Romeo Romeo and Juliet. Juliet. Yeah. That movie will always hold a special place in my heart. Yep. 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 But I don't think there's anything else. So I think we could just jump right into it. Yay. (laughs) Because I'm so excited to talk about this one because I decided I wanted to do the first book of the spooky season to be a spooky book but it's not really that spooky it's more horror genre horror that horror is still that's in the spooky sphere yes i feel like yes trigger warning this book covers topics on murder drug use and assault listen at your own discretion okay well there's a bird squawking in the background so please just ignore it as best you can we can't afford Fancy sound editing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so this week we are covering the Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix. Oh my goodness. That, I want to read a Grady Hendrix book so bad. This was so good. And when I tell you, like I was reading it and I was like, damn, you know a woman wrote this because they wrote a woman so well. And then I looked it up and found out he was a man. man. I was shocked. A white man? No. No. And it is a white man. So I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've, I've looked him up because my book club that I am um, in charge of, I've put a couple of his books on, like, he, they've not gotten chosen, unfortunately, but I've put a couple of them as choices, and they all sound so good. Yeah, I really liked this book. I was very surprised. I've never heard of him before, never read any of his books. So, we're going to jump, hop, jump, skip into this one. <laughs> so, Perfect. the story follows five women, all considered final girls, as middle-aged women. Now, Final Girls, I don't know if you're familiar with that term. No. So, like, in 80s slasher movies, a Final Girl was considered the last girl standing, and she would murder the killer. So, like, in Scream, that girl was a Final Girl. Okay. There was one in, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, all these really well-known slasher movies. That's what a Final Girl is. I think there's literally a movie called Final Girl. I feel like that sounds like it's ringing a bell. Yeah. Also, uh, I'm a dumbass. I have read one of his books. <laughs> I read Horror Store. <laughs> was it, well, clearly it wasn't that good if you didn't remember it. No, well, I just didn't recognize, like, I didn't know he wrote that book. Mm. Um, I d- definitely remember it because it's very unique. Um, he mm. writes a lot of unique books. Yes, so. this was very an, a very interesting concept, jumping off of that. So each of the women in the book are representations mm-hmm. of classic <laughs> 80s slasher films. Oh, that's awesome. So 
there's they take inspiration from those stories, but they aren't mm-hmm. actually supposed to be those characters. Right. Obviously, copyright infringements would probably not allow that. Right. So first, we'll I'll give a little background on each of the women in the group, and then mm-hmm. we'll jump into the actual story, just so we're a little familiar. Right. So Marilyn is like an uppity Southern belle who takes her appearance very seriously. She's married to a very rich man, and her story really mirrors the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. So Marilyn's story is that she was a Texas debutante, obviously, and there were grave robbings happening around her town. So she and her friends go to check on her grandfather's grave to make sure that hadn't been disturbed. And on their way home, I think it is, she and her friends get attacked by a family of cannibals. I thought you were going to say family of geese. <laughs> Canadians, what Same can I difference. say? Yeah, all of Canada's anger are in their geese, I think. Yeah, I agree, for sure. That just went so in a different direction than where this was. But <laughs> So they end up getting, all of her friends up, end up getting murdered, and she survives and kills the murderous family. And now what's, I should have mentioned this before, but what's different about this group of women is that they've all had quote unquote sequels and that all of their bad guys have come back. Oh no. (laughs) So Marilyn's sequel is that she was working as a DJ at her campus radio station and a relative of that first family came to attack her for what she did to murder her family, murder his, his family. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, getting, and, I'm picking up what you're putting down here. Yeah, and he and she obviously murders him, like, self. this is all self-defense. Right, right, right. Wow, the trauma these people must have. So now, Heather, the next one, is a druggie with an attitude. She's, like, kind of a bitch, but I'm not gonna lie. She's kind of one of those bitchy, awesome people. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. from, mm, you'll find out in the end. Anyway, she lives in a halfway house and her story mirrors that of Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger's situation. So Heather's story is a little less clear. We don't really get details on it. Just that she was attacked by the, quote, dream killer. And the second time she's like chased through her school by a janitor. It's very... I was very unclear on Heather's story, only that it was very traumatizing. (laughs) Right. So Julia is partially paralyzed. She has very little to no use of her upper legs. And obviously her lower legs, no use. I was going to say, like, did the lower ones work too? No. (laughs) So she's very smart and she kind of likes to tell you the ways you're wrong. You know what I mean? I have a a friend like that. Yeah. Yes. Her story mirrors the Scream movies. So when Julia was a senior in high school, her boyfriend and his best friends were big slasher fan films. Fans of the slasher films. You've heard of the case for that, right? No. You've never heard of the case? It's based on a true story. It's crazy. You should look look it up after this. Yeah. It's Um, really good. Like, don't get me wrong. And so they wanted to make Julia their final girl. So they kill a bunch of her friends. But she ends up killing her boyfriend and his best friend. And then her sequel was that an obsessed fan of hers follows her to college and kills a bunch of people in her dorm. And she walks in on the guy 
attacking her roommate. And she tackles him out of a third story window to stop him from killing her. Holy her roommate. Shit. Yeah. Um, and she ends up being paralyzed from that and her roommate still ends up dying. Oh, no. So the next girl is Danny. I like to really encompass her as the lesbian lumberjack from my dreams. She's <laughs> amazing. She's Love my it. favorite. Um, and her story mirrors the Halloween movies. So when Danny was a child, her brother was sent to a psychiatric facility for assaulting their babysitter. And <clears throat> he's like put on a bunch of drugs. And when she's 17 on Halloween, he breaks out. He steals some overalls and a Halloween mask and tries to go home to the their suburb. Along the way, he kills four people. And she ends up killing her brother, like, in a, in a tussle. And her sequel happens that night at the hospital when the brother returns and kills a bunch of hospital employees. And she runs out to the parking lot to, like, get away from him. And her brother appears, like, on a ramp without the mask on. And she beats him to death with a tire iron. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <clears throat> so now Adrian is this powerful black woman. She is a boss ass bitch. Takes shit from nobody. And she is the originator of the group. She's the one that brought all of these women together. Her story mirrors Friday the 13th. And I will get into her story more because it's kind of interwoven into the actual story. Mm-hmm. So I'll hold off on that. I'm already invested. This sounds like a great-ass book. It was. So then lastly is Lynette. The book is told from her point of view, so it's all first okay. person. She's very paranoid. She's a recluse. She basically only ever leaves her apartment to go to these group sessions. She's constantly armed, and she's always very aware of her surroundings. But her story is mirrored... Her story mirrors this... 80s slasher film Sleigh Bells, I think it's called. Never heard of it. But again, we will get into that as it's part of the greater story. Like I said, what makes this group of women unique is that they've all had survived a version of a sequel. So when the book opens, Lynette is waking up very early in the morning. She works out. She checks this cage she has around her front door. So that, like, if anyone comes in, they get locked into this cage and they can't get very far into the apartment. Girl boss. <laughs> she watches the news and sees that there has been another massacre. It happens at Camp Red Lake. Someone had murdered six counselors who were shutting the place down for the season. The last one was supposed to be Stephanie Fugate, who shoved the murderer out of the hayloft and survived. Adrian's going to have a mess because Adrian owns Camp Red Lake, which happens to be the site of Adrian's original attack. Mm -hmm. Adrian had bought the camp and taken it and turned it into a retreat for victims of violence and traumatic experiences. So that's what those people were doing up there as they were shutting down that camp. Right. So Lynette is paranoid to an extreme where she keeps her hair short so you can't grab it. She only leaves the apartment for group to check her mailbox once a week, to check her escape routes once a month, and bi-weekly trips to the corner store for supplies kind of thing. Like, she is on a schedule. <laughs> <laughs> she is 
very cautious. She's ready for everything. So she doesn't carry a gun on her out in the open because of an incident that happened on the bus that they don't really get into, but that's the explanation for why she doesn't carry a gun. But she carries pepper spray, a box cutter in her front pocket, and a razor blade taped to her ankle. (laughs) I like it. I like it. It's unique. I also think it's really interesting because each chapter is like interceded with pictures or documents of like either private notes from group or police reports or um, media articles about these like attacks and what made these women famous because Mm -hmm. they're all like well-known final girls. You get to group and you get these overviews of each member of the group that I mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is when we find out it's going to be Danny's last session of group and she's terminating her membership. Danny's wife, Michelle is dying and she wants Aww. to stay home and be close to her. And you find out that they've been doing this group for the last 16 years together. It's The year is 2013. Okay. So with the same Dr. Carol the entire time. Dr. Carol. Right. So Lynette is not happy that Danny is terminating. She says that she thinks that they've all been staying in the group for Heather because Heather is so erratic and needs group to function. Right. But Julia is confused and is like, I thought we were all coming back for you, referring to Lynette, which this causes a huge fight. And I thought it was really funny because Lynette turns around and goes, oh, stick it up your ass, roller derby. We were only letting we only let you into the group because we felt sorry for you. Oh, and Heather comes back and says, you're not even a real final girl, which the definition of a final girl is a girl that survives but murders this the killer in the end right to be clear about that that's like the Mm -hmm. distinction between a survivor technically i guess and a final Uh girl okay i guess so during all of this marilyn's phone keeps going off and now julia's phone is going off finally marilyn looks at her phone and they find out that adrian is dead So they don't stick around to talk about what they just learned. <laughs> they say, got a blast. They're just like, scatter. They're gone. Nobody look for me. <laughs> and Lynette has a system that she has, and it just takes over, and she goes into autopilot. She's paying attention to everything around her, including license plates, any shoes that look like they're repeating shoes that like she keeps seeing. And... The author makes a really great point here, which is, this is, this quote is the one that made me think that it was a woman that wrote this. Yeah. (laughs) And it says, men don't have to pay attention the way we do. Men die because they make mistakes. Women die because we're female. That is so accurate. Right? Yes. The amount of times I've had to, like, explain to guy friends that, like, no, I'm not crazy for telling my friends to track my location. No. Like, that is just, like, a fact of life. That's literally what I did all weekend. So, right. I had Alicia texting me a password that only yes. she knew. Yes. To make sure that she was okay. Next time we should set up one where you're in danger and you don't yeah. feel comfortable texting me, you'll oh, we'll yeah, send another one. Yeah, Right. Which, by that. the way, I told him that I had a password and he thought I was, he was like, that's a little intense. I was like, I don't mm. think you understand since you're a guy. You don't understand because he hasn't met me. Well, he just doesn't understand because he's a dude, I think. That's true too. So this is kind of where we get Adrian's backstory. That name is really pretty, by the way. Adrian. Yeah, it is. I think it's so nice. So Adrian is unique to the rest of the girls because she never had a sequel. 
this was this event that killed her was basically her sequel. Oh no! She was a counselor at Camp Red Lake when she was a teenager, and was part of the staff that had shown up early to open the camp. On the first night, nine of her friends were murdered over a 12-hour period. Wow. Okay. And the man, Bruce Volker, was a former camp cook, and he claimed that 20 years before, two counselors had let his son drown while they were having sex. The killing stopped when Adrian decapitated Volker with his own machete. Wow. Okay. Go off. But Bruce Volker never had a son who attended Red Lake. He never had a son at all. And uh, all Annette knows at this point is that this man killed Adrian in her own home. In the end, it takes Lynette three hours to get home, if that's any indication of how cost- cautious she is. Three hours? And how long do you, like, was that, like, walking? Or? It was jumping from city bus to city bus trying to, oh, like... Oh, shit. Yeah. Damn. So she gets home and explains how protected her apartment is going on about the cage and her guns and... The what have yous. Another great quote was, if diamonds are a girl's best friend, then a reliable handgun with stopping power is a final girl's. I was like, damn. Damn. I mean, so true, bestie. There are some really great quotes that I'll bring up through the whole thing because there were some really good ones. Now we get more information again on Adrienne and her story and how after her attacks, her story were turned into movies and they also whitewashed it, which is bullshit. Yikes. Yeah. So Adrian ends up hiring an attorney and suing the studio. And litigation ends right before the release of the third movie. And she gets everything. She owns the rights to the entire franchise, including the first three films and any future installments. So what does Adrian do? She fires everyone and rebuilds it from the ground up. Damn. But none of the profits from the movie were going to her but her nonprofit to help prevent violence against women. The author also makes a point that Adrian never insisted they hire a black actress for the main character because she had a realistic mindset when it came to who middle America thought of as a sympathetic victim. Right. How fucked up is that? That that's true. Right. I, it also brings up like a great point about like, like, um, I don't know how to word it, but like the, how production companies will prey on stories like that. Oh yeah. For sure. And they don't, those people don't won't see like any money from it. Yeah. 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 Yes, Bruce Volker never had a son, but he did have a nephew named Christoph who was now in 2013 35 years old and angry because his family tragedy is now this giant global success and no one cut him into the money. That's what you're sad about? Yikes. (laughs) He has tried suing Adrian, but clearly it didn't work because what judge is going to be sympathetic to a murderer's family member? After all these years, he still stalked her. She had to have a restraining order against him. You find out that he went and dug up his uncle's grave, then went to camp to kill the skeleton crew that was there to shut down the camp and got pushed out of the hayloft. But got away before the cops got there and then drove three hours to Adrian's house, put his uncle's head in her refrigerator before <clears throat> they, he murdered her. Nobody found Adrian's body until the police came to the house to tell her about the murders at camp. So at this point, Lynette hears knocking at her front door, which is terrifying for her because 
It's terrifying to me, too. Nobody should know where she lives. Nobody. So she goes and checks, like, the pinhole camera she put in her peephole, like a smart girl. And she can't see anyone. So she grabs her gun because she's, like, freaking out. And she checks the camera that she has placed at the bottom of her door and realizes it's Julia knocking. So obviously she wasn't going to see Julia through the pinhole camera because Julia's in a wheelchair. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so technically no one is supposed to know where Lynette lives. She doesn't even tr- have a valid driver's license because she doesn't trust the DMV. Uh, you know what? Valid. But she was also worried if she went missing, nobody would know where she lived to like look for her. So a few years earlier, she had given Julia an envelope with her address in it. And she would check in with Julia via text twice a day. And if Julia never got those texts, she would know where to come to Lynette's apartment. Lynette ignores her and hopes she'll just go away. (laughs) Same. So again, she comes back and there's knocking on the door. And Lynette looks through the pinhole camera again and sees Julia in the chair and the ghost is in his black robes and white mask, is holding a knife to Julia's throat. Now, the ghost is Julia's monster, which is what Lynette refers to these men as. Like, they're they're attackers. She says there's, like, an unspoken rule between them that if one of their monsters returns, they help each other. So Lynette opens the door and lets them Mm -hmm. into the cage. She immediately starts shooting at the cage, and Julia yells, stop. And you just hear a male voice go, I pissed myself. It turns out the man is Russell Thorne, a reporter, and it was all his idea to try and get into Lynette's apartment. Lynette is pissed because she thought the cage was not bullet resistant, and it turns out it is. And she's like, fuck, I've lived here without incident for so long, and now I've just shot my gun off twice. Fuck. So she lets the two of them into her apartment, and to get down to brass tacks, Julia says that someone in group is writing a book because Kristoff knew about it. Julia is like, I know it's Heather. She needs help finding her. This is what we get Julia's story that I mentioned in the beginning. But the book also says no matter how many times she shot her boyfriend, he kept making stupid quips, which I thought was really funny. Like, that's what I'm going to do in death. (laughs) We also get a really great line here. You don't want someone angry at you, especially a man. So you say yes to things you don't want to do. Because there's no roadmap for where you are. Nothing to guide you except a neon sign in your head that says, do not make men angry. Which is, again, very, very true. I wonder if he had a woman consultant on this book. Possibly. Maybe. This is also where we learn that Julia had ended up marrying her physical therapist. Who basically took all of her money and left her dirt poor. Stop. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So... We also find out that Stephanie Fugate, the survivor from the massacre I mentioned in the beginning of the book, said that Kristoff was a talker. He said that he was in contact with someone in our group, that they had been writing a book, and had asked for details about the lawsuit he had against Adrian. Right. Julia insists that it's Heather because she's tried to write a book before. She's basically has no money, and it just makes the most sense. That's This is the part where I said I was shocked to find out a, ran- a man wrote this book, but I digress. <laughs> so they hear police sirens. Obviously, someone called the cops. And then they hear a gun. Her apartment window shutters open. Just someone is shooting into her apartment. Shut 
shit. In the commotion, Russell, the reporter, gets shot and killed. And Julia gets hit. And it talks about her wheelchair rolling up and backwards so her back hits the floor. (laughs) And just the imagery of that. It shouldn't be funny. But in the commotion, it is. Anyway, crawling across her apartment floor, Lynette dashes out and leaves Julia behind. (laughs) She's like, see ya. Peace. (laughs) So she gets out of the apartment building, goes through the emergency exit, and lets her mental program just, like, take over. She has a few fake IDs that she bought from China to hold her over and a car waiting for her in a parking lot. When she gets to the car, she already sees that someone had been there. All four of her tires are slashed. Oh, shit. She is already just like, okay, keep moving. Don't even stop to examine the car. Like someone could be following you. Just keep going. And she refuses to believe that it's coincidence. But this is something she planned for. (laughs) And it's a phrase that Danny taught her that I actually really love now. Um, That one is none and two is one. It's like having a backup plan for your backup plan. That one plan is never enough. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she realizes someone must have followed her one night, whoever this person was attacking her is. So she calls a cab and takes it to a storage unit that she thinks is her ace in the hole. She has more credit cards and fake IDs, everything that she'd need to get out of town. Right. But she gets to her unit and realizes there's a, a different lock on it. <gasps> Someone no. had obviously been there. And that's when she starts to Fuck. panic. Because she's out of options. Right. So she throws her old cell phone in the garbage and takes out the disposable one she had in her go bag. Mm-hmm. And calls Dr. Carroll. Dr. Carroll is the doctor that had been overseeing all of their group sessions for the last 16 years. She's a very renowned doctor in treating trauma patients mm-hmm. and women that have survived massacres like this. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Carroll comes and picks her up from Starbucks and, that she's hiding in. And she right. fills Dr. Carroll in on everything that just happened. She asks Lynette if it could be Billy Walker, her assailant. But she's like, no, he's in solitary confinement. I check every week. (laughs) (laughs) That's you. Yeah, that would be me, (laughs) to be quite honest. No, uh, honestly, if I was in a situation like this, I would move to another country. No, no. Nay, nay. You would not be catching (laughs) me. Wait, so, wait, so is, wait, is so Julia, is Julia dead? Or do we not know that at this point? We don't know at this point. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So Lynette refuses to go to the cops because she has a dead person in her apartment. There's gunfire all over the building. And she, she also has, she also has guns in her apartment and she knows as soon as the cops see that they're just going to think terrorist. Right. I mean, I don't blame her. I also just don't trust the cops. So yeah, fair. So, so Dr. Carol agrees to let Lynette come to her home for the night, which Lynette is a little hesitant about. Mm-hmm. because she doesn't want to put them in danger but dr carol has like rich people security so like <laughs> she has a gate around her house she has a wow. security alarm she has floodlights motion detecting okay. you know like Bougie. yeah um lynette is like well are they still there and she's like it's just pax and sky her sons and lynette mm-hmm. goes "Ugh, men and dr carol is like pax is eight relax <laughs> 
that's something you would say. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. At this point, she's been with the girls for 16 years. So if she's going to trust anyone that's not in the circle, it's going to be Dr. Carol. Right. So they get to her house, and the first thing Pax asks Lynette is, are you crazy? And Lynette <laughs> turns around and tells him to fuck off. <laughs> Ma'am. And that is directly from the book. Like, she turns around and tells him to fuck off. That's not me, like, paraphrasing. It's so oh funny. Gosh. So we find out that the cops had called Dr. Carroll for more information. And when Dr. Carroll is on the phone with the cops, Pax shows her this comic book he made himself. And Aww. he go- literally goes, it's War Ghost. Pay me $5. <laughs> and I was like, that is literally something my nephew would do. Like, be like, give me money. I did something. Which is so funny to me. <laughs> Dr. Carroll finds out that Heather's halfway house was burned down. And they found drug paraphernalia in the basement where the fire started. Shit. Lynette's, they, so they find out that they can't find Heather, but they think she started it. So Lynette wants, yeah. So Lynette wants Dr. Carroll to call the prison and make sure Billy is still there. She knows what's going on, but nobody will listen to her. Like everyone thinks she's being super paranoid that it's just these, because Lynette thinks it's all their monsters, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. coming after them now. And nobody believes her. I believe her. So. For sure. She's, like, yelling at Dr. Carroll to, like, help her. And Pax is like, don't yell at my mom! And runs at her with, like, a dull pencil and tries to, like, stab her in the leg. What? Which, like, really doesn't do anything. And she literally just shoves him hard and he falls on his ass. And I just thought that was so funny. Like, just, like, the timing of it. He has great comedic timing in this book. (laughs) So Lynette sleeps in the gym that night. It's in the basement. There are no windows. There's only one way in and out. And... It's where she feels the safest. So she's lying in bed that night trying to figure out who it could be. And the only possible explanation is that it's all of them. All of their assailants. Mm -hmm. So the next morning she has breakfast with the three of them, including Dr. Carol's oldest son, Skye. He's 26. Ooh. Yeah. That when Pax decides that he has something to say, which is nice rack. Which Dr. Carol's obviously not happy about, but Lynette gets what he's going at, going at, and she offers to show him her scars to see how funny they look. Immediately, Dr. Carol sends Pax upstairs to get ready for school, and you find out that Skye does want to see the scars. He wants to, he wants to look. So she lifts up her shirt and shows Skye the scars on the back, on her back. She tells him it it was humiliating, but after the first five hours, the pain started to seem normal. Are we trying to make this sensual right now? Like, like <laughs> she's Ooh. taking off her shirt? So they go to Dr. Carroll's office in the back of the house, and Lynette apologizes for going as far as she did, and she'll show um, Dr. Carroll's boundaries some respect. But they get also get a phone call from the authorities. Danny has just shot a cop and is now in custody. The cops had shown up because the FBI had recently reopened Danny's case and wanted to bring her to the station for questioning. But Danny's wife, Michelle, is dying of cancer and Danny refuses to leave her side. So she says, no. No. Right. And Lynette refuses to believe that Danny actually shot a cop because she has such a moral high ground and respects respect for the authorities. Couldn't be us. 
<laughs> except for firefighters and hospital employees. It's strictly the cops. It's just the cops. After the par- ridiculous parking ticket I got, they can suck my dick. They gave me a parking ticket, a parking ticket parking outside of my house. That was my whole ridiculous. Butt. Anyway, so there was some confusion. Danny hadn't actually shot anyone. She had shot into the sky, and they tasered her. <gasps> no. And brought her in for questioning and put Michelle in hospice until Stop. this was taken so care sad. of. sad. Which is obviously... So the reason they had reopened Danny's case was because someone else had confessed to the crime. Which is obviously what? devastating to Danny because then she would have killed her brother for literally no reason because she had right. no proof that her brother was the one that killed those people in her neighborhood. And Mm -hmm. killed the hospital staff because the person doing that was wearing a mask. Right. And when she finally killed her brother, he wasn't wearing one. Oh, shit. Yeah. There was a rumor that the mask man who committed the murders and Danny's brother were two different people, as I just said. Right. And that is Danny's, like, greatest nightmare. Oh, no. Poor Danny. So we also find out that Julia is alive. She was shot three times and is in the ICU. And as I mentioned, Michelle is in hospice, which is devastating because Michelle wanted to die on the ranch with Danny. Aww. Her and Danny had been together for 19 years. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah. So Dr. Carroll convinces Lynette to go to the police the next morning, or so she thinks. Lynette goes upstairs to Skye's room where he's blaring music, like her brain is shaking in her skull. It's so loud. Damn. So she walks up behind him and realizes he is masturbating. Awesome. Because he didn't realize she was coming. So he, you know, cleans himself up real quick, gets dressed, you know. Puts it away. Yeah. He's 26. This isn't weird. It's a little weird, but he's not underage. To be clear. Glad. Glad we cleared so that up. She offers to pay him to drive her back to her old apartment to help her sneak in and tell her who got into her apartment. Like, someone had to know where she lived. Like, all of these different things. And how is he going to tell you that, sister? Sky is very tech savvy. He takes care of all of his mom's work emails, her website, like, things she... He can do what she's asking, essentially. Okay. So, he agrees and they'll meet downstairs that night. While waiting for that, she goes into Dr. Carroll's office when the doctor's not in there and kind of like pokes around to see like if she has any other patient files and finds a bunch of women who are all in similar situations but didn't kill their perpetrators. Okay. As Lynette calls them fetal final girls. <laughs> wow, what a name. So she finds a file on Stephanie and skims it. And finds out that this isn't the for her first situation. It's actually her sequel. Stephanie is 16. She was, the okay. girl, as I mentioned, she was a girl in the beginning. Right. Yeah. She When she was 13, she found out her tennis coach was poisoning players because he had an obsession with his racquetball champion. Shut up. That's crazy. And she figured it out before he could give her the fatal dose. So when Skye and Lynette go to leave that night, Lynette tells Skye he should change his shoes. He's wearing like these clunky under armor combat boots that are more like fashion than you, you useful yes that's the word i was looking for i couldn't mm-hmm. figure out like anyway so they run into packs before they could leave and he agrees mm-hmm. 
not to tell mom if Lynette pays for his com- gives her $100 for his comic book. Wow, damn, he's driving a hard bargain. So she gives she pays for it, shoves it in her bag and they leave. <clears throat> in the car, she tells Sky not to worry about the porn that he likes because she's seen stuff that's much worse. She tells him that there are people out there that are willing to buy murder murderbilia online and give some ideas, but I'm not going to elaborate. So you find out that, you know, Sky asks her if she's ever done it, like sold any of her memorabilia. And she says no, but it says I lied. So clearly she's done it. What has she sold? I It doesn't elaborate. So. That is, that is wow. So they wow. break into her apartment and she cuts up a piece of her, cuts out a piece of her wall behind her, her desk and in the wall is her actual hard drive. The one the cops took was like a dummy hard drive. Of course. Um, because, you know, one is none, two is one. That's like a theme throughout the book. Um, so while Skye's hacking into her computer, she goes and gets $3,000 in, ca- in cash that was hidden in a panel behind her kitchen sink. Wow. Imagine having $3,000 in has- cash. All of this cash just, like, hidden in different spots. She has it in the car, in her storage unit, in her house. Like, yeah. Wow. Imagine having money. Yeah, right? Couldn't (laughs) be me. Couldn't be us. So, Sky finds a program on her computer that could have allowed someone to access it if she was downloading things. Which she admits to herself. Like, she's downloaded shit from the Department of Corrections or, like, from Dr. Carroll. But, like, Yeah. My little delinquent. (laughs) So they take the hard drive and she wants to make sure it's safe because it has her book on it. Think about it it for a second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Think about, think about what Julia was talking about. Yes. Yeah. So Hmm. Lynette was the one that wrote the book for any of our listeners that couldn't put that together. So she has Skye drop her off in Bel Air and on the ride, she looks over and sees that he reminds her of Tommy, whose, identifi- whose identity will be explained later. Okay. And how different her life would be if things hadn't happened the way they had. So this is where we find out that Lynette has been writing romance novels <clears throat> under a pseudonym to pay for her rent. Understandable. And, and that Russell Thorne, the reporter that died in her apartment, had found out and was like semi-blackmailing her into writing a book with him. Ugh. Do you think, so, do we think she's, like, Harlequin, like, romance novels, or... I don't think she's, like, hardcore erotica. Okay. I think okay. she's more, like, Fabio books. Okay. Yeah, okay, you like, know shirtless I mean? men on the cover, yeah. but, like, okay. Got That's it, what got I it. think. Okay. I think erotica would be too much <clears throat> trauma for her. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. So... You find out that she's started writing the book and realized, what the fuck do I need him for? And kind of gave him the runaround. And like, she's like, I can just go to the editor myself with this. Like, I don't need him. But the more she wrote it, the worse she felt. And she's like, I can't fucking, I can't write, I can't publish this. I can't. And so she just deads Russell and like never talks to him again. <laughs> but like, keep, any, keep guests like girl boss. Yes. <laughs> so, but like any writer, you can't throw away the work. You it's you can't. Yeah, no. So she never actually deletes the document the book is in. Right. 
So in Bel Air, she scales the wall of this enormous mansion. Wow. Where she gets tackled and taken to the garage of Marilyn's house. Because oh. remember, Marilyn is like super duper rich. Yes. So the how Marilyn is currently having a charity event. Of course. So there's even more security around the perimeter. So she's like, I have to talk to Marilyn. I will scream if someone doesn't like bring her to me. Me. <laughs> and so Marilyn appears. And again, we get a little bit more of Marilyn's story where Lynette says, I try to avoid stereotypes, but in the case of the Hanson family, they were literally inbred rednecks, which makes me laugh <laughs> so hard. Marilyn ended up moving to LA after her sequel and married a man who, whose family owns correctional facilities, AKA they are loaded. Yuck. Yeah. Icky. And now she's just a, basically a social climber. So Marilyn has her security team take Lynette to the guest house where they'll talk there after the party. In her guest house, chilling watching TV, is Heather. What? And Heather is pissed at Lynette for showing up and is like ruining her nice setup because she's been hiding out with Marilyn. Marilyn. I kept saying Marilyn. And Lynette's like, no, I just need to talk to Marilyn. Then I'm going to leave. This is serious. And Heather is like, yeah, it's serious. Did you see the jacuzzi tub upstairs? <laughs> That's like, I feel like that would be us. Yeah, it would We're, be. But we could be either one of those people. Absolutely. <laughs> so as they're arguing, the news is playing in the background. And it's about Lynette. Garrett Cannon is on TV talking about some shocking revelation he has in relation to Lynette's case, known as the Silent Night Slayings. When they turn the sound up, he says that they're looking for Lynette for further questioning. And then I LOL'd at this part because it says, tune in tomorrow when Nancy Grace gives her take. Nobody asked for Nancy. No, no one wants Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> so Lynette thinks... Oh, so Lynette thinks to herself, as unpleasant as she is, I have to stay with Heather. Someone once told me that all you have to do to keep from being eaten by a bear is to run faster than your friend. Next, same principle. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, she's not wrong. No. So the next morning, Lynette sits down with Marilyn and explains everything that's happened, but leaves out the part about her own book. Marilyn says she talked to her attorney and Danny is being held until she can go before a judge. Julia is in the ICU and warrants will likely be issued for Lynette and Heather. Danny and Marilyn had always had a closer relationship and Lynette wants to go and check on Michelle because she knows Michelle doesn't want to die in hospice. And she's like, just this one last thing before I go. So the three of them go to see Michelle in hospice and she's on her last hours, much less her last legs. Like, oh no. And Lynette is not having this. She's like, fuck this. We're jailbreak. She's, she's going home. Jailbreak. So they basically break Michelle out of hospice. <laughs> Love that. And want to drive her back to the ranch where she can die looking over Danny's flowers. But nobody knows how to get to Danny's ranch, and Michelle is not coherent enough to give directions. They realize her breath is getting more shallow, and Marilyn pulls over into a public park because she doesn't want Michelle to die in a car driving in circles. She wants her to die outside where she belongs. 
So they pull over into this public park and tell Michelle that Danny's with her, even though they're not together. Like, they pretend like Danny's there. Aww. And she's like, Danny, are you there? And she's like, and Lynette's like, yeah, it's me. Like, holding her hand. And she... so sad. Yeah. She all... Girl, I left out a lot of stuff. This is, like, the saddest part of the book. Um, and then she ultimately dies. It's super sad, but now they're like, what the fuck do we do with her body? <laughs> I mean, that's fair. And Lynette Understandable. is fully willing to just leave her in the park because eventually someone will find her. <laughs> what? Marilyn Girl wants to call 911 but on. can't find her cell phone. And then they also have no idea where the fuck Heather went. Heather reappears. Heather reappears with an elderly man, and offer and he offers to sit with Michelle until her ride can come. He's old and senile enough to believe like she's still alive, and they see him like lean over and and adjust the blankets around her shoulders like she's cold, because he's like doesn't get she's dead. <laughs> so then Heather says she already called an ambulance and she's smiling like she feels bad for something. In walks oh. Garrett Cannon. Are you kidding? Heather had turned in Lynette to save her own skin. What a ad- what a bitch. Yeah. Wow. And Lynette, ooh, girl, ah. she fights. She tries to escape, but she is like surrounded by cop cars. <sighs> Fuck, Lynette, pour one, pour one out for you right now. <laughs> she, as they drag her away, Heather yells after her. The rest of us are survivors. You were always just a victim. Damn, what the fuck? You like you you he's already stabbed her in the back. You want to turn the knife? Fuck. So they take Lynette into an interrogation room where a cop asked her when she, when was the first time she had sex with the Santa Claus killer? What the fuck? She's surprised and caught off guard. Like she's almost gonna answer. But smart girl, she says, lawyer. That's right, girls. The cop keeps going and asks her if they had sex before or after he tried to kill Lynette. And I was like, "Mm, this feels illegal. This seems very illegal. So she continues to say, I want a lawyer. Yes. The cop pulls out a picture of Ricky. From High School Musical, the musical, the series? (laughs) (laughs) That was a good one. I'm proud of you. (laughs) Thank you. Joshua Bassett? What? So it's an old headshot because he wanted to be an actor. Oh my gosh, Joshua Bassett is in this book. Shit. She continues to say, I want a lawyer. And the female cop is like, we heard your request, but the public defender's office is swamped. And it'll probably be a while before someone gets (gasps) down here. And she's like, that's fine. I'll wait. Yes. Lynette, my queen. She's like, oh, this is what's being spread about me. That I had sex with Ricky Walker. Like what? In walks Garrett. And he's like, I was able to convince them to give us some alone time. I want you to do the Christian thing and come clean. So he covers the table in crime scene photos of her family. He asks how long she was sleeping with Ricky. And Lynette kind of like whispers, like, you know, I didn't. Garrett, to be, I probably should have made this clear in the beginning. Garrett was the original cop on her case. Clearly. Oh, okay. So, however, Billy, his brother, says differently. He's had a come-to-Jesus moment in prison. Shut up. Gag me. So, Garrett keeps pressing Lynette 
saying, so your statement is you didn't ask him to murder your parents. You're saying you didn't tell him you hate your dad and you can, uh, and you convinced him to murder for you. And then she realizes what else is in the envelope. Letters she and Ricky had written each other. Oh no. When Garrett starts to read one of the letters, she jumps over the table. (laughs) And that's when she gets shackled and brought into another room that's like entirely made of plexiglass, which I've never heard of, but okay. It's decorated like like Christmas with a tree and everything. Even a cop dressed like Santa Claus. And they're all laughing. So this is where we get Lynette's story. Christmas Eve, 1988, American Fork, Utah. Lynette is a cheerleader and she's super happy and in love with her boyfriend, Tommy. Granted, they've only been dating for six weeks, but sure, Jan. We get a little background on her parents that they probably would have gotten divorced if her dad didn't care so much about their appearances. Oh. And that her dad was the chief of police in town. No. She has a little sister, Jillian, who's 11, I think. I think that's what they said. Um, And both agree that if something were to happen between her parents, that they would go and live with their mom and see their dad on the weekends. But the two of them were not splitting up. So that Christmas Eve, their dad had one dinner for two at a nice Italian place in town. And it just so happened to be the place where her parents had their first date. So she watched her dad get like super excited about it. Almost it was like as if it was like their first date again. Oh, that's kind of sweet. Yeah. And because Lynette loved Christmas time so much, it really made her believe that that dinner could fix her parents' marriage. Oh. So her parents leave and Tommy calls and says he wants to bring her Christmas present over. So she sends Jillian upstairs and Tommy comes over and he gives her Christmas present, which is a Christmas pin with ruby and emerald decorations. Which like a pin... Really? Yeah. So it's getting a little hot and heavy. She decides that night is when she's going to sleep with Tommy and lose her virginity. Love that for her. And as they are making out, the doorbell rings. They ignore it, and then it rings again. So she's like, fuck, I have to go answer it. She was so young. She knew everyone in town. She doesn't even think. She just opens the door without looking to see who's outside. There's no one there. But then Santa Claus comes around the corner with an axe. <gasps> so this is going to get a little graphic. Fair warning. She at first doesn't recognize Ricky. And then obviously she does. Tommy comes up upstairs when she starts screaming and he tries to protect her. But every time he got in the way, Ricky would just hit him with the axe. And once he had put the axe in Tommy's neck, he goes after Lynette. She's wearing Tommy's hockey jersey because obviously she had to put something on to answer the door. Right. Um, And he tears off the jersey and lifts her up and goes into the living room. Now, before all this, her dad was a big buck hunter. And that Mm -hmm. included a white tail buck with a huge rack of antlers that hung on the wall in their living room. Wow, okay. Call me out. That's what's in my living room. I'm not kidding. <laughs> well, you're not going to like this part then. Ricky oh, no! impales her on the antlers. Ah! She's barely 95 pounds and hung there okay. for 10 hours. Flex on us. Yeah. The- 95- I don't think I've been 95 pounds since I was like eight. Right? <laughs> Could never be me. Could never be me. 
So she hung there for 10 hours as the antlers kept her from bleeding out, essentially. Oh, my gosh. So she watches her sister come down the stairs, and then her parents come home as Ricky kind of just slices and dices through them. Um, Shut up. Oh, my God. So she has a memory of taking care of Jillian when she was a baby, thinking, almost thinking, like, she was actually Jillian's mother, you know? like, mm-hmm. And she was giving... Jillian a bath and saw no more tears on the side of her shampoo bottle. So she poured half the bottle into uh, Jillian's eyes because she thought it was the no more tears meant Julia would never cry again. Or excuse me, Jillian would never cry again. Yeah. No. And her mom comes in because obviously she starts crying and says, you have Lynette, you have to protect your sister. So at one point during the attack, Lynette and her mom actually make eye contact and she's obviously crying. So her mom gets up and attacks Ricky because she knows that if he notices that Lynette is crying, she he'll know she's still alive. Right. So her mom basically sacrifices herself for Lynette. Oh, my gosh. Wait, I'm sorry. What happened to Tommy? He's dead. He's, like, fully okay. dead. He okay. was beat with the axe and had an axe in his neck. He is uh, okay. good, so good he, gone. Okay, okay. What kind of fucking research did Grady Hendrix do for this This book? is all based on a movie. Really? I don't know how, in, like, improvised this part was, but... Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. So, Ricky... Uh, so, because her dad is, like, police chief, cops stop by the house, I guess, like, mm-hmm. on a regular basis? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Um, know. He's in the kitchen when the first cop shows up. And he kills that cop with the axe. Then Garrett Cannon walks through the door and chases Ricky through the back door and ends up unloading his entire clip into Ricky's back. Good job. Yes. So that after that, Lynette and Garrett end up developing a very weird relationship. He was very much her savior, held her hand through all right. of her interviews and everything like that. Lynette ends up falling in love with Garrett. Oh, no, bestie. No. She says, for two years, I was a happy little idiot who did whatever she was told. (laughs) And if (laughs) there's anything that could describe me more. Mood. Just a happy little idiot. Um, So she ends up getting put in foster care. And she tries to let her life go back to normal. Until two years later, when she's 18... Ricky's little brother, Billy, shows up. Billy had been locked up in a psych ward previously for attacking their next-door neighbor, and he blamed Lynette for what happened to his brother. He breaks out of the psych ward, killing three or four people in the process. There had been four cops posted outside of Lynette's house after Billy's escape. So naturally, he comes in through the garage door, or like the back door or something, and kills her foster parents. Oh. He kept her in the kitchen for three hours and beat her with the cast iron cat doorstop that her foster mother loved. What? Oh my gosh. She thinks he would have killed her that night had not one, had one of the cops not knocked on the door to use the bathroom. Billy shot him and ran out through the back. It took 24 hours to find them hiding in the nativity scene at a Lutheran church. <laughs> Garrett shot him once. 
because, and Lynette says, because he knew a live killer would make the difference when it came to book deals. That's fucked up. That is so fucked up. So Lynette ends up getting a metal plate put in her skull because of Billy, like, beating her. Mm-hmm. And when she comes out of out of surgery, that's the first time she sleeps with Garrett. She is 18 at the time. He is 23 years older than her. Which, listen, that sounds gross, but that puts him at, like, 41 years old. And that's only acceptable if he looks like Chris Evans. Maybe he does. You don't know. Yeah. Um, based off the description in the book, I'm going to say a hard no. <laughs> Oh, no. But. No, girlfriend. If I had the opportunity at 18 to sleep with a 40-year-old man that looked like Chris Evans, I'm sorry, mom and dad. I would have taken it. (laughs) You're saying that with your whole chest. My entire chest and my butt, but whatever. Oh, my gosh. So he was the one that kind of held her hand for, like, the two years through the process of all of the sequel shit. And he was the one that actually set up the movie deals for her. And when she eventually backs out of those movie deals, he kind of just drops her because, you know, he's an asshole. Right. Like he eventually like slowly stops talking to her and she like loses her shit. And she says for as long as she can remember, she tried to force herself to believe that was a story. But now they have the letters. So she's held in the precinct and no one really tells her what's like going on. But they taped up all of the letters to the outside of the plexiglass so she can just lie there reading them all day. And she remembers in fifth grade when her teacher assigned the pen pals. Most of the kids in class gave it up after a month, but she and Ricky continued for six years. She never explicitly told him to kill her dad, but she had said that she had hated her dad and sometimes wished her parents were dead. And she'd even given him their home address. Which, like, makes sense if you're pen pals. They're pen pals, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, and that was super common when, like, I'm back even, like, that, like, back then, my mom had a pen pal when she was younger. Yeah. She would, she wrote for, like, a long time from, like, Nova Scotia. <laughs> so, like, that wasn't super uncommon. Like, that was definitely normal. Like, a school, a school curriculum thing, even. So she's lying there in bed thinking about it and she's saying like Heather got me arrested because she saw Garrett on TV because he mm-hmm. had those letters because mm-hmm. Billy Walker had come forward with those letters. So mm-hmm. now she's really trying to figure out who is this one person because there's no way Billy Walker would come forward without being instigated to come forward. If that makes sense. Right. Yes, that makes sense. So, but she has a visitor. Oh no. On the other side of the glass is, are we going to guess someone? I was going to guess Carol. It is Dr. Carol. <gasps> oh my gosh. I guessed something right. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. Look, look at you. Thank you. Thank you. Lynette is like, listen, this is, there is more than one person. The only way for all of this to be happening at once is if it's two people like working together. And she's like, we need to f- find out. Who was visiting the man that came forward to confess to Danny's crimes and Billy Walker? Because there's got to be a connection there. And then Dr. Carroll drops the bomb that Lynette's book has been emailed to her and the rest of the group. Oh my gosh. And Dr. Carroll is visibly upset and tells her she she should stay away because no one in the group wants to see her right now. Even Dr. Carroll really doesn't want to see her right now. So this book was the romance book that she no, was No, she was on. writing... This was the 
the, the book, like, like the... the expose on the group. And like, okay, it was okay. some pretty hurtful shit in there. Yikes. But Lynette says there's something weird about Dr. Carroll's reaction. Almost like it was too big and too over the top. Like uh-huh. she was so upset, but she took the time out to print out the entire book and bring it with her to the jail. Hmm. Interesting. So then Lynette is like, why the fuck did you do this to us? I trusted you. Right. And she's yeah. freaking the fuck out. She's screaming and trying to get a cell phone, but no one will bring her a phone. And they put her in this like anti-suicide squat. <laughs> anti-suicide, anti-suicide, anti-suicide smock. Jesus Christ. As oh, the boy. author like describes it. She can't really move in it. All she can really do is look at the letters taped around her. And that's when she knows a discrepancy in the paper. The paper she wrote it on was a Holly Hobbit, Holly Hobbit, Holly Hobby stationery with wildflowers on the border. But the mm-hmm. letters that talk about having sex with Ricky and wanting him to kill her parents had muffins on the border. So they were hmm. two different papers. Correct. Right. So a cop comes in while she's lying there, pretty much just drained of all of her strength from fighting this freaking mm-hmm. smock. She then... The cop then proceeds to try and kill her by suffocation. What the fuck? Saying everyone's going to be jealous. Garrett comes in and pulls the guy off her and kicks him in the face. When she wakes up, she's in shackles and Garrett tells her that they're going to Utah for prosecution. Okay. So it turns out that that officer was a super fan and he had been waiting to get his hands on her. Oh, my gosh. Of course. So they put her in Garrett's bright red Cadillac to drive back to Utah. The entire drive, Lynette is trying to think of who could be helping Dr. Carroll. There's no way she's doing it by herself. And then she realizes it's probably Heather. Heather, whose stories were never told the same way twice. Heather, who reported her. So after driving through the back roads, Garrett pulls over into this house that's like half built And Lynette is like, oh, fuck, this is where I die. He pulls her out of the car and uncuffs her. And he admits that this whole thing has smelled like shit from the beginning. Sure, sure has. He was trying, he was taking her back to Utah so she could escape, like, along the way. Mm -hmm. He says that Billy Walker told the DA about those letters because someone wanted her to get arrested. And it wasn't a dumbass like Billy Walker. (laughs) So she again tells Garrett that they should check the names on the visitors list. And he's like, you think I didn't already do that? Come on, son. That's amateur work. And the name is Chrissy Mercer, which we will talk about later. Okay. A name Lynette knows very well. So Garrett gives her her go bag with all of her money and her gun in it. Garrett wants to come up with an escape plan to tell people of like what happened when she escaped. Mm -hmm. And he's like, right. What if it's like two black eyes and a skinhead come and jump me and let her go? And she's like, you think a skinhead would be hanging out with two black eyes? What? So she kicks him in the balls and says, just tell him it was one pissed off girl, takes the keys to his car and leaves him in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Go off, queen. So she decides to keep her plans simple. She's just going to kidnap Stephanie Stephanie Fugate. Simple. She goes to Stephanie's house because it's been all over the media. So she like knows where it is and introduces herself to 
Stephanie's parents as Dr. Newberry, Dr. Carol's partner in, like, practice. Mm-hmm. Stephanie's obviously been dealing with trauma and media attention from Camp Red Lake. And while they're inside talking, she tells the parents that Stephanie is in danger and that she can keep Stephanie safe for the next three days. Stephanie comes downstairs and Stephanie comes downstairs to like talk to her. Mm -hmm. The doorbell rings and Stephanie had recognized the Lynette, but like played along that it was Dr. Newberry. Right. So while her parents get up to answer the door, Lynette is like, you need to come with me. I will keep you safe. We have to go. Mm -hmm. Dr. Carol is at the door and is basically there to warn them about Lynette. Mm hmm. Stephanie trusts Lynette enough to escape with her, essentially, in Garrett's Cadillac. Nice. She knows that the parents are going to freak out and call the cops and, like, all this shit. So she has Stephanie call her parents and is like, listen, I'm not going to kill her. Stephanie will call you every five hours with updates, but she's not safe. I will keep her safe. Goodbye. She realizes the Cadillac is a very noticeable car. So she drives to a recycling plant and buys four used tires. Then drives back to Burbank and replaces the tires on the car that she had that had the tire slashed. Mm-hmm. And it's like a beige sedan, like very, it will blend in with the crowd. Like it's not the car they'll be looking for. So she changes the tires on the car and has Stephanie change the last two. And while Stephanie's changing the last two, she calls Marilyn and Marilyn's like, don't ever talk to me again. I never want to hear from you. I don't Shit. trust you. Leave me alone. And Lynette is like, you can't trust Dr. Carol. You can't, like, please like stop. Don't trust her. So they get in the car and start driving. And Lynette tells Stephanie everything about someone trying to kill her and all of them. And while driving, she tells Stephanie to go to a site called mancrafting.com where okay. she tells Stephanie to compose an email to the site runner, basically saying she found items in a storage locker that she wants to sell and for them to get back to her, basically. Mm-hmm. The site runner is Chrissy, who I had mentioned earlier. So Stephanie opens up about what happened at camp, basically saying, you know, before this guy came, she was worried about, like, normal teenage things, if I was skinny enough, if I was pretty enough, and now all she cares about is staying alive. So they drive all the way up to Montana from L.A. And... Shit. They start stalking the Starbucks that they're supposed to be meeting Chrissy at. So to the rest of the group, Chrissy is like a bottom feeder. They consider her a traitor because she has Stockholm Syndrome. Oh, shit. So the best way to describe it is the way that the author puts it, which is Chrissy follows mass murder the way Canadians follow hockey. Which is funny because Chrissy's supposed to be Canadian. Ah, That is funny. So basically they watch Chrissy go in and wait and wait. And then they never go in to talk to her. So she comes out pissed, blah, 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 blah. Long story short, they follow her deep into the woods. Lynette tells Stephanie, I'm going to go in and talk to her alone. And Stephanie asks for a gun. And Lynette is like, absolutely not. You are 16 years old. And Stephanie is like, what am I going to use? Harsh words or something? (laughs) It was funny. Not going to lie. So she starts walking deeper into the woods. And as she gets to the property, she notices like dolls and stuffed animals. Oh, I do not fuck with that. Hanging from trees. Even nooses. No. A man grabs her from behind. They tussle a little bit. He gets the upper hand and drags her into the house. 
Lynette is about to shoot him when Stephanie appears and sends a man, Keith, into the back barn while the two of them talk. Keith is a little slow. He gives me deranged Lenny vibes of Mice of Men. Oh, no. Yeah. Yikes. So, while they talk, Chrissy was basically the type that embraced the monsters, if you will. Even using some of her settlement money from her homecoming massacre to fund Mm -hmm. legal challenges to the men convicted. Now, Dr. Carol thinks, like, her monster was her godfather, so she must have felt some sort of deep-seated guilt about being part of that conviction. But Lynette just thinks that she's bad shit crazy. So Lynette lies and warns her, saying that people are trying to kill them. And Chrissy says, that's always been your biggest issue. We've always seen what happened to us differently. Chrissy fully admits that she communicates with the men in prison and talks to them because she doesn't think they belong there. Oh, no. Absolutely not. And Lynette point blank says, you know who is doing this. And that's when Chrissy says she noticed numbers in the email, which is obviously confusing to Lynette and anyone fucking reading the book. She says that Lynette has more is more of an unfinished victim than a final girl. That this is Lynette's time to finally step into being a final girl and that Chrissy is honored to somehow be a part of it. But first, she insists that they go through her museum to get to her computer that has the emails on it. Inside is basically like this disgusting maze of paraphernalia related to mass murders. Oh, no. She's not one. She's one of those girls. Yeah. So she basically says that murder is man's attempt to steal birth from women. We make children. They kill them. We create life. They create death. It's always been that way. And when you boil everything down, it's creation and destruction, man and female, life and death, birth and murder. She's basically bad shit crazy. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. So in the museum, she has rooms dedicated basically to each final girl. She has one for Adrienne's room that's like authentic pictures of her time at the lake. She bought Marilyn's debutante dress. She's trying to show Lynette that the final girl is the murderer's yin to the murderer's yang, if you will. Uh Uh-huh. So, we don't get a lot of information on what happened to Heather, as I mentioned, but Lynette says when she saw Heather's room that she would have forgiven Heather right on the spot and that it was so much worse than she could have imagined. So, I really don't know, like, what happened. (laughs) Still very unclear about that. They finally get to the room with the computer, and Chrissy says he's coming for everyone one by one, and he's going to come for you last. You'll be the final girl of final girls. Uh, okay. So Chrissy is running the website that sells the murderabilia. And she got contacted to get a commission from Billy Walker, like some fucking artwork. And at the commission, at the bottom of the commission is a bunch of lined numbers. Obviously she passes the message along and Billy's response comes with its own line of numbers at the end. The more correspondences, the more she realizes that this is obviously like a code It's like one of those Mm -hmm. things where you have a set book and it's like the page number, the line number, the word kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And of course, the book has to be the fucking diary of Anne Frank. What the fuck? Because every prisoner has a copy. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. So you find out this acromenus, acromenus, 
I can't fucking say it. Paid Billy to tell the police about the letters. Tell them where this guy had hidden them. They were buried where this guy hid them. Right. That this guy knows Lynette well enough to forge her handwriting for the extra letters. So that name is from an ancient city in Greece. And once a year they would have a feast where a priest could hold a blade and pursue fleeing women into the night. And if he caught them, he could do whatever the fuck he wanted with them. Uh, okay. Yeah. So Chrissy's like, isn't it obvious? It's Dr. Carol. <gasps> Chrissy says she had bought Ricky Walker's letters at a storage auction and had even brought them to the DA, but they, like, six years earlier, but they were deemed irrelevant by a credible source, whatever. So Acromenius contacted Chrissy to buy the letters and Chrissy was like, I need proof from a legitimate email before I sell these to you. Right. And the email was Dr. Carol's. Mm-hmm. Then Chrissy gets a text that Keith had found something in the woods. Chrissy uses her stun gun on Lynette and just Lynette goes limp, drops her gun, like all of it. So Lynette is led back into the house Keith had just, like, tossed Stephanie onto a chair. He's clearly not mentally all there, and Chrissy's talking to him like he's five years old. It's really creepy. This part made me really uncomfortable, so I'm just not going to go into detail. But he's just like, I want her. And Chrissy's like, an artist needs to practice or his tools lose their edge. Oh, absolutely not. No, ma'am. Chrissy's like, it's a good thing the neighbors moved away because she looks like a screamer. Stop. Lynette tries to convince Chrissy not to hurt Stephanie because she's a final girl. And Stephanie's like, she's no final girl. She's a monster. Get him, babe. Like, that kind of thing. Ew, stop. She's 16. So alone. Then Chrissy gives Lynette the chance to run, and she takes it. She runs back to the car and drives the car into the house. She refuses to leave Stephanie behind the way she did with Julia and her sister. Uh-huh. So she literally drives her car into a house. Wow. So in the impact, Chrissy's TV went flying and smashed into Chrissy and actually killed her. <laughs> Love that. And Keith gets lost under all of the rubble. He, like, pops out again and, like, kind of, like, chases after them. But they, they escape, essentially. Right. So they go to a Motel 6. And mm. Lynette has, like, a crisis of conscience because she killed Chrissy. And she decides that... No one else is going to die at her hand. No more killing. None of this. Like, this is not the right thing to do. She thinks that Dr. Carol is going to try and isolate everyone at this wellness retreat that she owns. Mm -hmm. And she tries to call everyone, but nobody picks up. And then she remembers she has Skye's cell phone number because he had given Mm -hmm. it to her back in the beginning when he dropped her off in Bel Air. Right. She calls him and tells him to take his little brother, get the girls, and get as far away from his mom as they could. He said that their mom is going to take them on a road trip. She's pretty passionate about it. I don't think I'll be able to get out of it. So she's like, well, just try. She calls Julia, assuming no one's going to pick up because she's still in the ICU. But she's surprised when Julia does. She asks if Julia's okay and if she's in any pain. And Julia says, like, what? Because I'm paralyzed? Why don't you get shot in something you don't use, like your head, and report back? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. She tells Julia, just don't go anywhere with Dr. Carol. 
Don't tell me where you're going. Just stay together and stay safe. While reorganizing her backpack, Lynette finds Pax's comic book again that she had bought. Yes. And she looks at it more closely this time and sees it written across the monster's chest is Skyman. In the pages, it says that the monster says, I will kill all the last ladies. Skyman will kill all the mean girls. There's the Don't depic- like that. There's a depiction of chopping off heads of six women, one of them in a wheelchair. It's pretty bloody. She remembers that Chrissy's emails were from Dr. Carol's emails. And remembers how Sky said he was the one that took care of his mother's work email and her website. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so you got it then. Okay. Yes. I was expecting a bigger reaction, but that's fine. <laughs> so they get on the road and try and call everyone. No one's picking up. Lynette thinks about calling Garrett and Stephanie's like, are you fucking crazy? You stole his car and you kidnapped me. Like, he's not, he's just going to take you in. So they've been driving for hours and they're really like butting head, heads at this point. So they decide to stop for gas, like cool off a little bit. And Lynette looks over and sees like Stephanie's on the phone with her parents, just letting them know she's okay. At that point, they decide to go to Danny's ranch and like reconvene there. Because if anyone knows where they went, it's Danny. So they get to Danny's ranch and they pull in and see this massive bonfire. Lynette and Stephanie get out and all you see is Danny's furniture. It's basically up in smoke and they're like, fuck, we're too late. Right. But out comes Danny. She's like carrying a chair or something and you realize it's like a Viking funeral. Mm-hmm. And Lynette tries to talk to her and Danny's like basically like, I don't want to live in a world without Michelle. You left her in a public park, you asshole. Shit. And so you find out that they found Michelle and some random guy was trying to kiss her. What the (laughs) fuck? Like, you're a piece of shit. So a fight ensues between the three of them, like, physical fight. Obviously, Mm -hmm. Danny has some pent-up rage about the whole situation, understandably. But they end up convincing her to tell them where the others are, because if anyone knows where they are, it's Danny. You find out that they're up at Camp Red Lake for the time being. Lynette talks to Danny and asks her to come with them to Red Lake to save the others. And Danny agrees. But before they leave, she goes into her barn and releases her horses. It's clear she has no intention of coming back alive. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So it's a three-hour drive up to Camp Red Lake. So it's confirmed that Julia, Marilyn, Heather, and Skye are up at the lake. Lynette says she doesn't want to hurt him. She's sick of people dying. It's not what she wants. But as they get closer to the camp, Danny pulls off to the side road really quick. She's like, I got to take a piss. I'll be right back. Mood. And parks the car and hops out to go pee-pee in the bushes. (laughs) So while Danny's peeing, Lynette goes to turn to Stephanie to say, we really need to come up with a plan. And as she's saying it, she feels like almost a sledgehammer hits her in the back of the head. And Everything goes black. Oh, shit. She feels Stephanie climb over the seat and get behind the driver's wheel. Then Stephanie reaches over and opens the passenger door and Lynette tumbles out like a dead fish. Fuck. The car rolls over both of Lynette's legs, but she doesn't really feel anything because of the head head wound. To be clear, Lynette was shot in the head. Fuck. By Stephanie. Yes. I did not put that together until, like, a little while after. I was like, oh, wait. Oh, fuck. 
I guess she wouldn't have realized it was a shot in the head. Like, right. whatever. You can hear the sound of broken glass as a car slams into Danny as she reappears. Fuck. She reverses Shit. back to where Lynette is lying on the ground, basically dying. She tells Lynette, you know how pathetic you are? I watched a person, I watched one person after another take you down. And when it was my turn, it was even easier than I thought. You had other people holding your hand for your entire life. You're not even a real final girl. She then realizes Lynette is still breathing, so she needs something bigger. And Oh, fuck. She goes and grabs one of Danny's shotgun, shotguns from the bed of the truck. Then Lynette kind of, like, smiles to herself, and Stephanie's like, who the fuck? Yeah. What the fuck? And they look over, and Danny has disappeared. She's not, like, slumped against the tree mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And so Stephanie's like, fuck, now I have to go look for her. Yeah. So Stephanie goes to look for her in the bushes, and Danny roars up out of a bush like the big lesbian lumberjack she is. <laughs> and they, like, fight over the gun. And she points the gun at the sky as they, like, fight fight over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Danny ends up knocking her back and, like, onto the ground and crawls towards Lynette. And just as Danny gets to Lynette, Stephanie shoves the butt of the gun into Danny's forehead to, like, knock her out. Oh, no. And... The two fight, while the two fight, Lynette does what she does best, plays fucking dead. She stops breathing, keeps her eyes open, and Stephanie is like, this one doesn't even count. She basically killed herself. Fuck. Damn. Damn. Yeah. Damn. So Stephanie gets in the car and tosses a shotgun in the seat next to her, and Lynette thinks to herself, shotgun riding shotgun. (laughs) (laughs) Literally in the moment of dying, she thinks of a pun, and I was like, wow, that really is me. That's some shit that I would say to myself oh as I'm my dying. Gosh. But it ain't over, sis. Oh my gosh. You'd think that's where it... Nope. So Lynette uses all of her strength and willpower to get herself up the side of that hill. You find out that, obviously, when Ricky beat her within an inch of her life, she had a mm-hmm. plate put in her head. Right. And when Stephanie shot her, it just so happened to hit the plate directly. Oh, fuck. Yeah. So, like, no harm, no foul, I guess? I don't know. I don't know. So she gets up to the side of the hill and sees Danny's cars already at the entrance of the camp, a.k.a. Stephanie's already there. Right. She figures it's almost five o'clock. Everyone's probably in the dining hall and she needs to get them to safety. She gets there and finds the first body. It's a camp employee. She goes into the kitchen and finds the second, which is also a camp employee. From the storage room, she hears some movement and knocks on the door, saying, like, it's me, it's Lynette. Julia rolls out, and Stephanie's, she, Lynette tells her it's Stephanie, and Julia goes, the one you kidnapped? Jesus, Lynette, your people skills are shit. (laughs) She's not wrong. She's not not wrong. wrong. So, you find out that there are 20 other staff members having a memorial service for Adrian there. Oh, shit. So... Everyone else is down by the lake. When they look over at the grass, they can see Danny lying face down in the middle of, like, this concourse. Mm-hmm. They see that she's still breathing, but she's in really bad shape. Like, when they go up to her, they want to, like, get her out of the open. Right. And in her peripheral vision, Lynette sees a man in, in tactical gear, dressed in black with, like, a gas mask on, coming towards them with a very large gun. Not a fan. Together, they haul Danny towards one of the cabins, 
while Marilyn and Heather reappear and together the five of them kind of like race into one of the wooden cabins. Everyone's panicking because it's a fucking wood cabin. But Lynette goes over to a little notch in the wall and pulls on it and titanium plates come down between the walls and behind the door. Basically securing the whole cabin saying Adrian had installed panic cabins just so Lynette would feel safe going there. Which is like, wow. oh, that's so sweet. What a what a bestie. Right? So you can hear the gun, sh- like the bullets showering the outside of the building, but it's not really doing anything because of the plates. But there's also a tunnel underneath the cabin for escape if need be. So Lynette's like, I have to go and take care of these people. They're Adrian's people. We have, I have to help them. So right. she dips through this hole in the ground. Basically. Fuck. Okay. So she gets to the end of this row of cabins and yells out to Stephanie, like, bitch, I am still here. I am still kicking. Come and get me. And she decides she's going to weave her way through the wellness barn because Mm -hmm. it's basically like this giant maze. Mm -hmm. Only she pulled a me and didn't realize that the doors to the barn were pull, not push. (laughs) And she just loses any lead she has and goes crashing through those doors, which is like such a me thing to fucking do. Oh, my gosh. The masked man follows her through room after room after room going after her because each room has, like, two-door access. Mm-hmm. Until finally they get to the last room, and it's a hydrotherapy room. There's only oh, one shit. door. There are no windows, and she's trapped. The door flying open knocks her back, and the man is standing over her, pointing the gun at her face. On instinct, she looks down and sees those same Under Armour combat boots. And realizes that it is Sky. Right. He says, you'll die alone and no one will care. Fuck, dude. Out of nowhere, Heather hits him over the head with a toilet lid and Fuck. knocks him unconscious. He falls forward and catches his face on the edge of the tub. And just stops moving. <laughs> Everyone Damn. else is back in the cabin, locked in. Heather says, like I said, I meant it when I was on some higher level shit than you could understand. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my, wow. So she repeatedly kicks Sky in the balls, and Lynette's like, don't move him, he could be injured. And she's like, oh yeah, God forbid, we don't want him to have a spinal cord injury. Like, peppering the words with, like, <laughs> kicks to the balls. It was so oh funny. Oh my gosh. So Lynette convinces Heather not to murder him, and Heather's like, okay, fine, and tosses the gun into the tub. Mm-hmm. Of course, Stephanie makes her appearance now, with Ugh. a shotgun pointed at Lynette through Heather's neck. Like, it's pointed at the back of Heather's neck. and it Yeah. Can, yeah. Yeah. She told Stephanie that she survived because of the plate in her head. And Stephanie's like, okay, to be fair, I only skimmed your Wikipedia page. Skunky Junkie here, on the other hand, is big game. <laughs> and Heather's like, I fucking hate super fans. <laughs> what the fuck? So she says, my man and I have been running you for weeks like rats in a maze. And now... We're getting you down like a fish in a barrel. This was more, cha- this was about as challenging as a wet fart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you find out that the two of them met online a year prior. She says that Sky and I will be the heroes and your names will just be lost in the story. Heather's like, then pull the trigger, or shut the fuck up. <laughs> and thinking back on it, she realizes that Dr. Carroll's house had a file on Stephanie's information, and that's how Sky found her. Yeah. So Lynette is like, he found you first, didn't he? This was like all his idea. 
It wasn't about girl power. You're just going to be a footnote in this manipulative man's story. Like, it's right. all going to be about him. You're just going to be lost. And she's like, when it's like, unless you kill him too, he's still alive. But I bet you could finish him off by hand. That would make a statement. And so as just as quickly, Lynette pushes Heather out of the way, grabs the shotgun and points it to the sky the same way Danny had, like she had seen mm-hmm. Danny do. And mm-hmm. they struggle over the weapon before she finally collapses on Stephanie with the gun, mm-hmm. the gun wedged between them. And she basically like koala Stephanie, like fully bear hugs her. So Stephanie cannot move or use the gun. And Lynette hears Stephanie screaming in her ear, kill me, kill me, kill me, kill me. And Lynette is like, no, you'll go to trial. You'll go to prison. And Stephanie's like, I'll escape. Good luck with that. She goes, no, you won't. You're not that smart. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. Okay. The author makes a really good point here in saying dying isn't the important thing. It's nothing more than a punctuation mark at the end of your life. It's everything that comes before that matters. Punctuation marks, most people skip over. Uh, Most people skip over them. They don't even make a sound. And I was like, damn. Damn, Grady Hendrix, you're dropping some truth on us. That was deep. So you find out Lynette is conscious for three days to let the swelling in her brain go down. And while she's slipping in between consciousness... Sometimes she would catch Sky's lawyer on TV having his daily press conference where he would read from Sky's manifesto. The defense had a plan to say that Sky was a victim of out of control feminist conspiracy. Okay. And Lynette thinks to herself, like, it would have been easier for Dr. Carroll if Lynette had just let Heather shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. She's so, right. So with her apartment still considered evidence and her landlord suing her for thousands of dollars of damage, Lynette has, like, nowhere to go. She ends up at Danny's ranch, where Danny doesn't necessarily tell her, no, you can't say, so she takes that as a, yes, you can. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Carroll makes one public statement, and then after that, like, nobody can reach her. She's not answering any phone calls, nothing, which is kind of understandable. Yeah, I get it. Danny has to have her left leg, left hip, and both knees rebuilt. So she's in a wheelchair. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. It's now visiting day at Central California Correctional Facility. Outside, Lynette runs in to Garrett Cannon, who had mentioned, who mentions he had to pull a lot of strings for this to happen. Mm -hmm. And then he mentions the book they planned to write together after all of this was done. To which Lynette says, I was fully lying when I said I would do that with you. Oh my, bitch, you haven't learned? Like, what? And before he can say anything, she, like, hobbles away on her cane. So the four women sit around the visiting table. Marilyn, Danny, Julia, and Lynette. Nobody knows where the fuck Heather is. Only that Marilyn had set up a bank account for her and that there were regular ATM withdrawals. But for all they know, she could be dead. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So the door opens and Stephanie is led into the room. She, had, she hadn't actually killed anybody. She just put Danny in a wheelchair and gave Lynette a cane. Like, she didn't actually m- murder anyone. Right. There was a lot of effort into planning it, but Stephanie going with Lynette on that little road trip was completely on a whim. It had actually been Sky who she was talking to at that rest stop before they went to Danny's, not her parents. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So Skye wanted to murder all of the people that his mother cared about and humiliate her in front of the world. Lynette says, but let the world forget Skye Elliot. Let them forget Stephanie Fugate. Move on. 
Mm-hmm. She got 25 years for each of the three charges of assault with a deadly weapon and th- uh, three of battery causing seriously bodily injury. She'll be in prison for the rest of her life. See, that's the most unbelievable part of this whole thing. What? <laughs> she wouldn't get. She wouldn't be in jail for the rest of her life. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> She'll the get system parole. Is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Stephanie is clearly like unbothered. She does not want to be there. She's bored. She does not care. Blanette knows that she's been victimized and she has a responsibility to leave nobody behind. Adrian had always said, no one is too lost to be found. No one. She welcomes Stephanie into the final girl support group, knowing it probably won't work, but you never stop trying to save your sisters. And that is the end of the book. Wow. Yeah. How did fucking Grady Hendrix even think of this shit? Yeah, right? It's very clever. It's very clever. It was so good. It was so good. Like, setting up Dr. Carroll the way he did. Like, I thought it was Dr. Carroll from the beginning. Like, when she said, the only person we can trust outside of the group is Dr. Carroll, I was like, all right, she did it. (laughs) Yeah. Immediately. Case closed. Case closed. I don't need to finish the book. (laughs) But, no, it was really well written. What did did you give it? I gave it five stars. It sounds good. Like, it's a very different concept which i appreciate yeah so and it was action-packed from the get like there was never any filler you started this on monday, monday. and like i finished monday it, afternoon right yeah and i and finished, then you finished it, it thursday yeah that's fast for you it is and i would have yeah finished it faster but i had other things that i had to do right. like i probably would have finished it on wednesday right but it, like, there was never any filler. There was never anything that was just, like, all right, get to the point. Like, it was very well-paced throughout mm-hmm. the whole thing. Right. Um, I know my friend that read it had her choice feelings about Lynette, but what can you do? Um, Everyone's got their opinion, yes. I guess. Everyone's opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got them, but you don't need to tell them or show them. <laughs> I don't know the phrase. I just know that opinions are like assholes. But yeah, it was very, very good. I would definitely read his other books. Yeah, I would say, so Horror Store, which is the one that I read, the concept and layout of that book were awesome. Um, If you've ever seen that book, it it looks like an Ikea catalog. Oh, you showed me that book. I didn't realize that was him. Yes, that's why when I was like, oh, I don't think I've ever read any of his books. And then I looked at his Goodreads and I was like, oh shit, yes, I have. Yeah. It's he like must be insanely creative because that is I would have never have thought of that. Yeah. So like, he de- that is ve- definitely like his vein is like finding concepts that are out of this world. Yes. Yeah. 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 That. Yeah. I want to read that. I might borrow your copy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Go ahead. Yeah. It was really well paced. And like my only thing is I want to know what story correlates to Chrissy's. Mm-hmm. that's the story I want to know. Like, which one is she supposed to be? But... Right. You never know. You know? You know? You know? Okay. Well, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. You can find me on Twitter at FranchetoSticks with an X or on Instagram at Francesca Hope. And where can they find you? You can find me on Goodreads, Alicia Reads 13, or on Storygraph, Just Alicia Reads. And we'll see you for the next one. Bye.